You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Hi, here's the thing, listeners. I'm not Alec Baldwin. I'm Anna Sale from the Death, Sex, and Money podcast. Our show is about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. And I recently interviewed Alec on stage at the Brooklyn Academy of Music about all this big stuff, money, sex, and death. These are things he is remarkably honest about in his new memoir called Nevertheless. And because you're a Here's the Thing listener, I know you like revealing interviews. So we thought you'd like to hear one where instead of asking the questions, Alec Baldwin is the one answering them. Okay. What I wanted to do was run out, me first, (laughs) and introduce you. I'm in control here, dude. Okay. And then I would run out and you'd introduce me. So I want to start uh, with how you start your memoir, Money. You say early on that the reason you wrote this book was because you got paid for it. And you say the mercenary force is strong in this one. So I want to ask you about money. Uh, Is the making of money for you, is the thrill in getting the big paycheck and spending it at this point, or is it watching it accumulate to feel safe? You know, I completely forgot that this is an episode of Death, Sex, and Money. <laughs> We're taping this for your show. Um, well, I, I, it's interesting you say that. I never really thought about that because I don't... Uh, I literally have a... Uh, I, this is going to sound silly, and may, maybe some people are too young here to get this analogy, but um, like in Bugs Bunny cartoons, Bugs Bunny sometimes would be sleepwalking on a construction site. And he'd be walking along like these girders, and he was about to walk off the edge, and another girder would come into place, and he'd walk on that, and uh, always be rescued at the last moment. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of my financial planning strategy. Uh-huh. <laughs> Things get really bad, and then a big girder of money comes in. And I walk on that for a while, as these planks of money keep coming in to float me to where I'm going to go before I die. But um, I never really think about that. I have, as really, I really... Th- believe a lot in providence financially yeah well, that's I, not what you want to hear i don't know i think i'm much of a financial planner i think i actually appreciate how honest you are about money being part of what motivates you because you grew up not with a lot of it 
So it makes sense that creating a sense of security, not only for yourself, but your, for your family, is something that you've thought about as you've made career choices. I think that people who like go into business and uh, succeeding and uh, uh, being measured, at least in one part, on money and income. Um, people in investment banking, obviously, things that are all very near and dear to us New Yorkers. Um, uh, the, uh, you know, the business I'm in, you, you, you tend not to think about that, and then all of a sudden one day you are thinking about that because there's tremendous opportunities there for people who succeed in film and television. But uh, I think that when I got out of my house when I was a kid and I went to school, I thought, I just want to succeed at whatever I do. Like, if I went into acting for like a year or two and I was still waiting tables, I probably wouldn't have done it. I wasn't going to walk around for like a decade, you know, with a copy of uh, Balm and Gilead wedged in my pocket and like, you know, hanging out dressed in all black clothes at... Uh, <laughs> McSorley's all night long, you know. You weren't going to suffer <clears> for wasn't the art. Do, I, I wasn't doing that. Yeah. Well, you actually, the, you, you, you recall a conversation that you had with a professor at George Washington. When you're at that stage of life, you've gone one year to college at George Washington, thinking that law and policy is part of your future. You trans, you're thinking about transferring to NYU. And he says to you, you write, it's interesting that you're not talking about any dreams you have. You're just talking about how you're going to make it that that was what was driving yeah. you. Well, he, he, was, uh, he was a very uh, intense guy, very clever guy, and, you know, smart guy. I think very caring of his students, you know, older. You know, I was in my early 20s. He was probably close to 60, probably like around my age now. And um, he, um, uh, for my own benefit, to kind of threw a cold glass of water on me, you know, to, uh, to think about how I was going into this. I was giving up going to law school and this kind of traditional track I was on to go into this more non-traditional track and rather late in the game. And he was like, well, where's the artistic spirit? You know, where's the, um, the passion for it from an artistic standpoint? And I don't think I had that, really. You don't? No, no, I think I, I, think I, went, to, I went to NYU. Uh, for people, again, these are references people here might be too young to get, but I'll never forget, the guy that was auditioning me then was a guy uh, named Fred Gorlick. And I came in, and, and of course, I later find out I've done, unfortunately for poor Fred, I've probably done the 900th rendition of Long Day's Journey and tonight. I've done Edmund from Long Day's Journey. I get in, and I'll never forget Fred, who was this very colorful guy. He looks at me and goes, you remind me of a young Aldo Ray, he said. Because my voice is kind of raspy. You remind me of a very young Aldo Ray, he said. And I thought, my God, is that a compliment? I thought, yeah. <laughs> is, that, is that supposed to uh, uh, close the deal mean? here? Yeah. So I go to the school, and uh, I had tremendous doubts about that. I, really, I didn't really think it was what I wanted to do. I was going to try. I would never be young enough again to try that, so I did it. And then as soon as I got out of that first year, I had to go another year or one semester because all my credits didn't transfer, but I got work right away, and then I just kept working. And the more I would work in the business, the more I would, um, for simplicity's sake, I'll say, get into that Uta Hagen thing about respect for acting. Because in the beginning, it wasn't that I had uh, a cynicism about it or a lack of respect for it. I just didn't take it seriously enough. And then after I did this soap opera for like two years and absorbed all the things from those people about their experiences outside of the television show, because all of them were like 
running off to go to the McCarter to do King John and everything. And I'm doing a soap opera where you know, every day we go to work, the script unavoidably so was just treacle every day. You know what I mean? Every day you're like, Greta, I love you, Greta. I love you so much, Greta. I wish there was enough time in the day to tell you, Greta, how much I love you. And like the next day, the same thing. Once, one more time, let me put a finer point on this, how much I love you. And it was like you just want to go blow your brains out. And, um, and all the cast, many of them veteran theater actors, they take their break, and I say, what are you going to do? And they go, well, I'm going to go do King John the McCarter. I'm going to go do uh, Light Up the Sky at the Paper Mill Playhouse. And they're all the Westport Playhouse. And they're all really intense theater actors. And by the time I came out of that process with them, I had completely changed, I think, really. You write with a lot of fondness about David O'Brien, who was your co-star on The Doctors. And I love these scenes you, you recall of running around the mid-50s of Manhattan as a young man, having moved from Long Island to then Washington, and then you're running around town with this band of gay men, a very handsome young man yourself. And, and back then, yeah, back then. And, and I, it was so good back then. But it made me... It made, <laughs> Amazing. It made me kind of wonder, like, you had a lot of different role models for what masculinity looked like. Yeah. On Long Island, in Washington. Then you, well, David O'Brien becomes this very important role model for you as what, what a man who's a performer is like. What did you learn about masculinity from those guys when you're drinking in bars in Manhattan <laughs> at that stage of your career? That's so great. David played my father on the show. And I knew he, what, what his nature was the first day, because the first day I come on, they were very merciless there. They wanted you to know your lines, and they wanted to, they wanted to do what they call live tape, which is don't stop, because we don't want to do the editing, because the editing costs money. We want you to play the scene straight through. Don't, don't cut. Try to get through it. Try to remember your lines. Like don't, SNL. Like, right, exactly. Like yeah. we're doing it live. Even though we weren't live, that we could cut. They tried to avoid that for cost, and I come in my very first day, and I don't remember my lines. I can't remember any of my lines. I'm, I'm terrified. I'm mortified. And there was a guy named Don Stewart, and I, I believe I've been told that if you listen to the broadcast of the first time I was on the show, because we had cue cards back then, actual cue cards, next to the camera with this guy, Don Stewart, you can hear in the background Don Stewart tapping my cue card where the line is, I'm supposed to say. <laughs> so David O'Brien plays my phone. He's like, so Bill... We haven't seen you in such a long time. Where have you been? And I go, oh, you know, uh... <laughs> and I go, we'll go to the card. And, and David would save me. He'd save my line. I bet you were spending a lot of time at your grandmother's house in Newport, weren't you, Bill? <laughs> Newport, yes. You've been in Newport for a while, I see. And I was like, yes, 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 yes. I was in Newport. I, I was, uh, I was, uh... Working at the bank uh, for Grandma, Grandma's bank. I was working at Grandma's bank, you know. And then I, I, I realized how caring and how kind he was, and I became really good friends with him. And he was from an old, you know, he, David was in the original company of boys in the band. He was from a pre-AIDS, pre-80s gay culture in New York. Uh, his, his, his friends were all, uh, as I say in the book, they were executive gay. Mm -hmm. uh, they were uh, uh, CEO gay and uh, we go to these restaurants uh, uh, I go as I was David's date and uh, um, he taught me many things but uh, he taught me that uh, 
I think what I don't think he meant to teach me, but what I say in the book is is that under any given circumstances, I could have been gay. I say that in the book. I was as in love with him as anybody I've ever met in my life. I never slept with him. I never slept with a guy in my life. But I look at him and I go, "Was it my hang-up? Like, did I? What's the what's the membrane you pass through by which one minute you have a certain set of values in terms of sexuality, and you meet somebody that you care about as much as any woman I've ever been with?" I thought to myself, "Well." What do I do now? You know, I say in the book, I took a woman I was dating to his house on On Fire Fire Island. Island. And she was just Velcroed (laughs) to the corner and didn't say a word. And he and I were like, oh, you, you, you. And she's sitting there like eating, you know, macadamia nuts and like doing her nails. And I'm like, you you okay over there? You okay? And uh, I mean, I loved him. I loved him. He was a great guy. And uh, uh, but he taught me to. He taught me, he was the beginning of me learning the one for them, one for you school of acting, which is embrace the commercial and embrace those opportunities. But uh, then when you can, you run off and do these other things for your soul. You know. So you began acting one year at NYU, one and a half years, as you say. You, you join the doctors, you go to Hollywood, quickly find success. And during this time of becoming an actor with a job on Knott's Landing, you also have a cocaine habit that you write with some detail about. Did I? Yes. It slipped my mind. <laughs> when did you first do cocaine? My God. <laughs> Is your show called Drugs, Death, Sex, and Money? The, um, I guess here in New York with uh, people from the soap. There was people who were, uh, you know, one day you're down in the bathroom in a bar in New York. It's the 80s, and you're doing cocaine, and you're, and you're like, oh, that's cool. And then, and then of course, the money thing. You know, like you, I look at everything in terms of a value of, you know, what I could afford, and I didn't want to um, waste money. I thought, God, I, money is so uh, elusive in my family, in my bloodline, uh, that I, uh, uh, I would sit there, and somebody would, I'd say, well, you know... <laughs> I mean, literally, you know, I'm like a Woody Allen character in my own life, you know. I'm like in the bathroom. I'm like, so how much does this stuff cost? Uh, you know, if you're doing the cocaine, you know, how much you, like the portions you buy, what size, like a little baggie, and how much is that? And the woman's like saying to me, uh, you know, they tell you how much it costs. And you're like, oh, God, no, I'm not doing that. You know, that's like, it was cost prohibitive. And then when you make more money. It's not cost prohibitive. It's not prohibitive. Thank you. You write about an overdose, a cocaine overdose. Yeah. While you were working, you're alone in a hotel room. Mm-hmm. You think you're going to die. Did you stop using cocaine because you were ashamed or because you thought you might die? Well, I didn't. I, didn't, uh, um, I stopped then in the fall of 2000... Oops. Typo. The, uh, in 1984, I stop, and then, uh, and then I go and uh, do it again. And people had said, you know, that uh, in these different 12-step programs, that if you give up one thing, then you'll pick up other things. And sure enough, uh, my drinking increased, and uh, uh, I would, you know, not that, it was, that that was too crazy, but I'll never forget one time I was at my friend's house, who were my dear friends, and they were all snorting cocaine. And they knew what happened to me, how sick I was. And they were all talking. And it was like one of those E.F. Hutton commercials. Where like all of a sudden, everybody stops talking when the cocaine mirror is in front of me. Because they want to see if this person that's overdosed is actually going to... So everybody's going, blah, 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 blah. 
So I didn't uh, go back and do that until one more time in the February of 85. And um, it just made me sick. It made me, I was very sick. Because I, uh, uh, I think, uh, as is often the case for many people, success was far more scary for me than failure. Failure was what I was accustomed to. Mm. Or not succeeding was what I mean. I, growing up under very, very uh, uh, ordinary means and so forth. And going to L.A. and... Um, uh, and trying to figure that out. My dad had died. There was no O'Brien there for me. I write in the book that one of the strongest themes of the book is my need to find someone to replace my dad and to mentor me. And um, I did this thing. I mean, as loquacious as I can be at times, I played this game once with two famous men that were two huge executives at a studio. And I, I'm not that smart, but on one occasion I thought, I'm going to sit and have lunch with them and I'm not going to say a word. I'm going to read all about them. This is before the internet. I'm going to find out about their careers. And I sat and had lunch with one particular guy. And we talked for an hour and a half at a restaurant in Beverly Hills. And he spoke in an unbroken monologue for an hour and a half. <laughs> he just couldn't believe how much I was act, really acted. It's the best acting I've ever done in my life. I'm going, then what? And then you do what after that? Ooh, really? My God. Then you did that. Oh, my God. And I kind of meant it because he was a very fascinating guy. And the lunch is over and he calls up my agent. And he goes, I love him. <laughs> He's fantastic. You know, and I realized getting out there, like it's, uh, it's like this much about how talented you are and this much about how much they like you. They, have to, they want to like you. Yeah. And they want to work with people they like. So I started to kind of get into that idea. And then eventually I just chucked that. I was like, I don't care if they like me. Coming up, Alec tells me about choosing to be a very public celebrity while also being addicted to solitude. You know, Ray Charles is blind, but he learned how to play the piano. Sometimes people are the Ray Charles of, uh, you know, uh, agoraphobia, you know, or being in public. They, they find a way to handle it and deal with it, but it doesn't take away the fact that they uh, aren't necessarily that comfortable in front of people and talking about themselves and so forth, but they find a way to get around it. More of my conversation with Alec Baldwin about his new memoir, Nevertheless, coming up after the break. Mother's Day is coming, and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. I'm Anna Sale from the Death, Sex, and Money podcast, talking today with Here's the Thing host Alec Baldwin. As a college student, Alec transferred from George Washington University to go to NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. After a year there, Alec got work as an actor and dropped out. But more than a decade later, when he was in his late 30s, he finished his degree. I read all of the books of Stanislavski and Strasberg, and I watched all of the films of Al Pacino, and I interviewed Al for nine hours. Really? Off and on. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> I mean, Al would be like, literally, Al, we'd be, doing, we'd be talking, and we'd be getting into this great thing, and he was doing me this big favor by letting me interview him. And uh, like about an hour and a half would go by, he'd go, I'm going to go to the grocery store, Alec. <laughs> I'm going to run down to the grocery store right now. You wait here. I'll be right back. <laughs> I'd be gone for like an hour. <laughs> and I'm sitting there <laughs> writing. And I had 225 questions. And I interviewed Al about the applicability of method acting to someone with a career in theater and film. And Pacino was the only one that really mattered because he kept going back to the theater throughout his career and still does. He just finished doing a show in L.A. And I interviewed Al, and it was just one of the most amazing experiences of my life. Do you remember one thing you learned from those interviews that sticks with you? Al does not like to talk about acting, which was very frustrating. <laughs> we were writing a paper about acting. And uh, we're in his house one time, and there's so many anecdotes about that, but one time I say to him, I said to him, I look at the line of people's work, like what's the kind of uh, uh, a course they're on? And I said, now... In this period, right this year, you did the movie Author, Author with Tuesday Weld, this romantic comedy. And in the title song of the movie, the lyrics they sing are, and in the end, it's just, it's just all cookies and milk and a smile. I said, and then after that, you do Cruisin', the homosexual uh, crime movie, a detective movie uh, with Billy Friedkin, which was this big disaster for everybody involved. And uh, I said, you know, you have your, you know, your, this really violent movie. I said, what's that like for you as an actor when you pivot between these different things? And he literally sits there and goes, that does sound good, though, doesn't it, Alec? It's all just cookies and milk and a smile. That doesn't sound too bad, does it? And I'm like, yeah, it, it sounds great. 
But then you go from that, you see, <laughs> to people like murdering each other in these gay clubs in Manhattan. I said to him, you do a scene with Richard Cox and he is going down on you in, in uh, Riverside Park. And I said, you're a method actor. I said, what's that like for you shooting that scene? He goes, all I remember was it was cold. It was so cold. <laughs> We're there in the park and it was so damn cold out there. And he would never answer my question. <laughs> Acting, like, to reveal to me, wouldn't answer one question. And, but then you talked about the theater, and he talked about the theater. He would uh, uh, articulate about that quite a bit. Oh, that's interesting. So I want to ask you about acting. I want to... It was so damn cold out there, Anna. <laughs> that's all I remember. I, I'm curious because you have been both a professional actor and a professional celebrity for most of your adult life. So you have been acting in roles and being the persona of Alec Baldwin. When you are preparing, like t I was thinking this weekend. So, so last night you're preparing to go on Saturday Night Live as Bill O'Reilly and as President Donald Trump. And then tonight you're preparing to open up your personal life to all of these people who are here tonight. Oh, don't get your hopes. <laughs> like, do, is there a similar way that you prepare or are they totally different? I think it's a... Um, that would be good to answer the questions without the bike. <laughs> but um, the... Uh, the um, I think... Uh, uh, well, I mean, you know, you go along and you, and you have a career, and of course you want a career like many people I admire, where the only way you can access them is to buy a ticket. And uh, they have certain things in the business they don't want to do. You know, Daniel Day-Lewis is very elusive. And uh, he's not doing Jimmy Fallon, you know. I mean, I mean, you can almost wonder what that conversation is like where people are like, you know, so we got this idea where Daniel's going to come on the show, right? <laughs> and he and Jimmy are going to have like a pie-eating contest, okay? <laughs> and like spitting the pie out. There's pie everywhere. And there's like pie and snot and pie. And you can see Daniel Day-Lewis on the other end with his publicist going, I don't think so. No. <laughs> and there's like things those people won't do, and then that becomes the difference, which is you become someone who will do those things. Where the promotional aspect of the film, but the promotional aspect of the film becomes you performing in that capacity. Yeah. Rather than, uh, you know, there's a lot of people, Nicholson won't do press, Pacino and De Niro uh, avoided that a lot. Uh, uh, Brando, you look at old shows from him on... Uh, 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 Cavett, and he wasn't going to work very hard at all. You, know, you can see Cavett like writhing in his seat, trying to understand if, if uh, he's making any progress with uh, opening up Brando. And then in the modern world, you have this requirement to promote the project. And they'll come to you with a very long list of things for you to do. They'll say, well, we would like you to pick some quotient of this list of like and then it's like a joke like a Coen Brothers movie the piece of paper like rolls all the way down the hallway you know? and uh, it's crazy and uh, the um, and so you do some because you want to be viewed as the good partner in the business you are working with them on a venture where it's in all of our interest for the thing to do well and we're in a very crowded marketplace so you agree to spit the pie out with Jimmy on the show and I love Jimmy and I love doing those things but that's what happened to me was I kind of went that way where you're doing Letterman and you're doing this. And, and to some degree, it's possible uh, that uh, from time to time, that stuff can eclipse the actual work you're doing. 
It's, 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 it's more, uh, they get more hits and clicks on the internet. I mean, more people will watch Saturday Night Live than pretty much any movie I've ever made in my life. You know what I mean? So it's weird. Does it take a similar amount of energy to perform Alec Baldwin as it does to perform a role for you? I guess I don't know the answer to that question. Like, I mean, when you say perform me, I, uh, it's, it's strange because, like, you know, you, you, people always have an expectation that you're going to contribute something in some way. You know, I mean, I love going to the movies. I love going to the theater. And it's about somebody else, and I don't have to do any of the talking, you know. But uh, the other thing that changes is that your passion for some of the work you do begins to change. And you still love it, but you love it a little less, or you, or you love it less often. Like movie making. You know, movie making is this incredibly uh, time-consuming, uh, you know, pain. We did 30 Rock for six and a half years, and there's a velocity to television. You know, we, Tina and I would say, you develop a muscle which you begin to kind of appreciate how we have to make choices quickly and efficiently. And I always tell the same crazy story about, like, in the movies, you'll do a movie sometimes, and you can't believe the, the level of uh, indulgence, you know. I always say, I did this movie one time, and, the, and there's a shot is of a, of a, is of a, a doorknob. And the, and the director says, all right, Alec, in this scene, you, your hand comes into the shot, and you reach for the doorknob, and you open the door. And inside the bathroom, Nicole is, Nicole Kidman, Nicole is in the shower, out of focus in the distance, and action. Hand comes in, open the door, open it, and cut. All right, and this time, open the door a little less, maybe three <laughs> inches. Split the difference, three inches, four inches, maybe somewhere in there, some range in there. Show it to us, please. And you're right about there. Open the right about there, that's great. Take four, take five, take six. Finally, okay, have your hand come in. Have your hand come out. You're rethinking the whole thing. <laughs> then have your hand come in. I like to see the tension in your hand. <laughs> your hand is trembling just a bit. There's a tension. Open the door. No, you change your mind. <laughs> and, and we're doing this. Like, this is like the half a day before lunch. And the movies can be like, this, this is very rare now because movies are uh, independent film, have very restrictive budgets. But I remember I did movies where, you know, we, we didn't get a lot done every day. And we shot the movie for like four months, five months. And uh, uh, that's not all that exciting because most of the day is spent uh, like just in an idle gear in your trailer waiting for them to come and go, we're ready for you. You know, and it's just, uh, uh, I, I didn't, I, after a while I thought, what the fuck am I doing with this, you know? <laughs> so by 2010, you have come back to New York, you're working on 30 Rock, you have gone through a very public divorce and custody battle, and Vanity Fair describes you as the bruised mascot of the male midlife crisis. <laughs> Which was well put, I thought. <laughs> They're very good, that Vanity Fair. They're very good. They're on to something. At that point in your life, is that how it felt? I think I felt like I was just not... Uh, um, uh, I was not finding things I wanted to do work-wise. That was 2000. I got uh, separated and divorced in the early 2000s. And, when, you know, and I go along, and uh, you make independent films. And uh, um, in the book, I take some of those independent films, and I write a little uh, uh, section about... When you go into these films, why do you do them? There's a reason you do them. You, they might not have the, uh, the, the uh, uh, 
uh, the the markings to be some great film, but you want to go to work, and this is what you do, and you and I did have you know some options, not many then. So I pick a movie and I say, there's a real opportunity here. You meet with a director, a writer-director in the modern world, and you uh, think that he's a smart guy, uh, and you go do... I list like 12 films that I did that, you know, when you saw the film, you wondered, what was I thinking when I did that film? But I... But you kept working. You were working steadily. Well, I talk about how when we go into... Nobody sets out to make a mediocre film. I don't really mean that in a heartfelt way. You start, you, you go and you say, let's give this everything we have. And, uh, uh, and, and, and sometimes you're into it like the second week of shooting and you're like, oh God, what have I got myself into? You know, it's, it's not going, you know, they're not, you don't feel that creative. When I did the movie The Cooler with Wayne Kramer, Wayne was this, this really, really intoxicating guy. He was just so smart and so passionate and so clear. And uh, he was the captain of the ship, which you want with every director. And, uh, and not all movies were like that, you know. And uh, um, the I come to where I'm going to do TV because I thought to myself, you know, the opportunities in film are, you know, if I do one more movie, or, or I, take that, I, I take that back, if I read one more script in which, you know, uh, um, Laura Dern's my sister, and we're going to put Dad in a home. <laughs> you know? You know, it's an independent comedy, and Laura and I, and I are like, you know, the well, first scene is, you know, we pull up, at the, she picks me up at the airport in Buffalo. <laughs> and we haven't seen each other in like nine years, and I'm like, you look good. <laughs> How you been? You know, next thing you know, we're putting, you know, dad is like Philip Bosco, we're putting him in a home somewhere. You know, Len Carrey is dad, we're putting him in a home somewhere. And I just kept reading the scripts going, what the fuck am I going to do? And, um... So I started to develop TV, and then Lorne flew in, as the superhero he is, and uh, asked me to do 30 Rock. And, I did, and then I did the TV show with Tina. Which you started in 2006. And I, I, you've written a whole book about fatherhood and divorce in that time in your life, and the custody battle. But I want to just ask you, at this point in your life, if a buddy comes to you and says, I love my kids... I think my marriage is breaking up. What's the advice that you give him? Well, I try to tell people that if they can, I say find a way that you can get into therapy and get into the collaborative divorce, you know, the, the, the dignified divorce, because uh, uh, you're going to so regret if you don't. And uh, the, um, I mean, I'm with friends of mine who I'll say to them, you know, are you out of this? I mean, this is if they're good friends of mine. I don't say that to strangers. <laughs> I'm out in the airport bar going, are, are you ready for this to be over now? <laughs> While Gwen's in the ladies' room. Her name is Gwen, am I right? I don't know the two of you. I overheard you yell, Gwen! And, uh, I, and, and uh, no, but I think, you know, like, I tell, try to tell my close friends or people who, who want to have that conversation. You know, I'm married again. My wife is here. She's somewhere out there in this... Uh, she's somewhere out there in Brooklyn. And... Uh, um, and everybody uh, has their difference of opinion, and everybody has their arguments, and everybody has this. But to me, marriage, when you're with the right person, uh, and even that's no guarantee, it's a decision. You decide to stay, and uh, you decide to uh, try to make it work. Uh, and, and you want to kind of feel out of the other person. This is a can of worms, by the way. But you want to find that if the other person has the same kind of attitude of disposability that you have, 
Like I have a friend of mine who was married to his, they were together nine years, they were married like five years, and she literally woke up one day and said, I've made a mistake and I'm leaving. Like, boom, we just shot him like in one day. And he's overwhelmed with uh, a confusion. And uh, obviously um, they didn't have the same attitude about marriage that uh, he thought they did. Has your attitude, what, how did you say it, the, the, the attitude about disposability, has that changed for you over your adult life and your romantic life when you look back? Well, um, I got married. I met my wife five, uh, six years ago. We got married, and very quickly we had three children in three years. And, did you uh, all hear that? <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, 30 Rock was over. I had a lot of time on my hands, and... Uh, <laughs> home a lot and uh the uh uh and you know my wife i'm very it's a lot of luck and i try to remember in in our in our lives like what's my role which i don't always fulfill my end of the bargain as well as i might but my role is to support her you know and i and i kind of accept that i mean in order to make things easy i mean i love my children i worship my children but as my dad taught me uh parenthood is a contest between two people where the dad always wins the bronze medal (laughs) And um, my, uh, my wife is, uh, you know, the moment my wife walks in the door, my kids are like, yeah, that's great. See you later. Boom. boom. You know? <laughs> but my job is to be there to try to help reparent our children together. But she is the mom. And I'm lucky. That was my point. I'm, I'm, I, got, I got very lucky. And luck plays a big part in it. Well, it's to read back interviews before you met your wife, you were very open that a dream that you had was to to just try to have a family again that you prayed Boy, for. did that dream come true. <laughs> How did you... I mean, you are living a full, unmarried life in New York City, star on 30 I was unhappy. Rock. I was unhappy. Yeah, I didn't like that. Is that that's how you how remember that time? How long have you been married? Time? Watch this. I know. <laughs> you were waiting for the moment where I was going to... I take Anna Sale. <laughs> My guest is Anna Sale, the host of Death, Sex, and Money... How long have you been married? I've been married a, a year and a half. And you met your husband. You, you knew each other how long? We got together in 2011. So we were together four years before we got married. So you, you met him in recent years? Oh, yeah. As, yeah, I was, it was my second marriage. Wow. Yeah. Huh? Huh? <laughs> I learned some things in the ensuing years. So that's why I wanted to know from you about... <laughs> <laughs> About like, so you think back on that time when you were having success on television. You've turned around your career after feeling like things hadn't quite worked out with with movies, and then you're a star on Thirty Rock, this critically acclaimed show. You're winning Emmys, you're winning Golden Globes, and you felt lonely. That's how you remember. I that went time. home and ate a pint of ice cream every night and watched Turner Classic movies. It was all by myself. I, was, I didn't meet... I mean, I met people I dated, and I met people I dated. I had a run of time with this one or that one, and, and uh, um, uh, none of it I was willing to commit, by the way, because I didn't want to, my older daughter to think I was abandoning her. Many people said to me, but they said, no, be careful that your daughter will view you moving on as an abandonment of your daughter. So I kept pushing away any formalized commitment with people. And then finally, when my daughter turned, it all kind of came together. My daughter was 18... Uh, uh, actually, she was uh, uh, 15, uh, 16. She was 16 when I met my, my wife, Ilaria, and, uh, and all of it just developed at the same time, where like, I met somebody who I thought, oh my God, I think it would be a horrible act of self-robbery if I didn't 
try to pursue this on some level. So, uh, you know, we got married. But, but, but before I met my wife, hey, you know, I, was, I was cutting every ribbon. I was going, to, like, do you want to do the auction for the Sheep's Head Bay Book of the Month Club? <laughs> they need an auctioneer. I was like, do I have $5? Do I have $5 <laughs> for this framed picture of Jerry Lewis? $5. And I'm like going to every auction. I'm going to every event and hosting. And I'm, I'm out every night because I don't have anybody at home waiting for me. And I just kept um, keeping busy and working. And, uh, uh, and then I met my wife. And now you have the opposite. Were you doing a lot of auctioning before you met your husband? No? I was out more, yeah. And, and now I have a small child, and I'm home a lot. I'm home a lot now. So I'm, how, now you come home, you have three little kids. What's that like? How, what was that transition like? Uh, well, it's, it's, it's wild. You know, we had the first kid. We had our daughter, Carmen, that was great. We had our son, that was great. Uh, and, and then we and then you have a third kid, and it's uh, it's you know everything becomes Cirque du Soleil. It was your whole house is like, <laughs> you know, we had a nice apartment, and I had a dear friend of mine come over. I hadn't seen her in years, and she was up from Washington, and she comes in. I said, and you literally can't imagine you're like, uh, 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 you're you're there turning to someone, and you you can't believe you have a life where you say this line. You're like, I'm sorry, I don't have a really really comfortable place for you to sit down. <laughs> you know, because the kids' toys are everywhere and everything. <laughs> And my friend looked at me, she goes, I get it, it's a preschool. Your apartment is a preschool. But we have three kids, and uh, the, the great journey is watching them. You know, our daughter Carmen is, she's a talk show host. I mean, she is really so verbal. And, uh, you know, you sit there, you, the, you, you're there in that moment where you come around the corner in the kitchen, and she's staring up at the refrigerator like it's the monolith in 2001, A Space Odyssey. And she sees you, look at her, and she looks at me, and she goes, she goes, I'm not going to eat the chocolate. I'm just protecting the chocolate. <laughs> She's three and a half. And you just kind of stand there and go, who are you? Where did you come from? That's Alec Baldwin talking with me, Anna Sale. You can find more episodes of my show, Death, Sex, and Money, wherever you get your podcast: iTunes, Spotify, or at deathsexmoney.org. One more thing Alec told me, his father and grandfather were also named Alexander, and they both went by Alec. So growing up, the youngest Alexander Baldwin was called Xander. Alec told me there are still a few people who call him that, especially in his hometown of Massapequa, Long Island. There's one guy I grew up with. His name was Greg Maughan, and his mother was this character out of like a Sidney Kingsley novel. You know, she was this, this really New York-y kind of woman with a cigarette in her mouth. They had a clothesline in the backyard. She'd hang the laundry in the yard, you know, and this is suburban Long Island. I think I went out there about six or seven years ago. So we uh, were driving by, and I pull up to the Maughan's house, and there's Mrs. Maughan with a cigarette in her mouth hanging out the laundry. It's <laughs> like nothing's changed. Me and her sons, we're all in our 50s. And she has like a basket of laundry. And I pull up and I go, Mrs. Maughan? And from like 60 yards away, you know, 60 feet away, she goes, Xander Baldwin. <laughs> what are you doing here?
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.